Good morning, church. For those of you I don't have the pleasure of knowing, my name is Caleb. I am not the, uh, I'm not a pastor here. I am the student minister, and Ryan was at Pine Cove, if you guys have ever been to Pine Cove or gone to Pine Cove. And so I get the honor and pleasure of being here with you guys today, and I'm super excited about this because we get to talk about maybe, actually, I'm going to say, yeah, it's probably one of the weirdest chapters in the entire Bible. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if that's irreverent. Maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, but that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue through the book of Hebrews. We're going to pick up in chapter 7. And today we're going to talk about, and why this chapter is weird is because it's about one of the weirdest dudes in the Bible, and his name is Melchizedek. I'm sure you've used that for a middle name for your child or something. Um, but we're going to talk about Melchizedek. And the whole point of chapter 7 is about how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And... This is really important. This is, a very, this is the focus point of the entire book of Hebrews. And because, as, if you remember, we've gone through Hebrews, we talked about how Jesus is greater, about how Jesus is greater than the angels, about how Jesus is greater than all these things. And here, the focal point is that Jesus is greater than the priesthood, than the Levitical priesthood. And chapter 7, the argument is twofold, and that's how we're going to look at it. The first 10 verses are about how Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then the second half of the chapter is about how, how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Now, because you and I are not Jews, we probably could use a quick refresher on the Levitical priesthood. I don't know when the last time you read the book of Leviticus was. Um, I'm guessing it's probably been a minute, though. You know, It's not like it's the most exciting book in your Bible or anything. Um, that was a joke. You could laugh, but it's fine. <laughs> Come on. It's boring. You could say that. Uh, and so let's review the Levitical priesthood. So in the Old Testament, God gave Israel the law, and they were to obey the law. The Israelites were to follow the law. Now, because they are broken men and women like you and I, they could not follow the law perfectly. They made mistakes all the time, left and right. Now, When they broke the law, their fellowship with God was severed. Now, the only way to restore that fellowship was through a sacrifice. But here's the thing. If if we were all Levites, let's say we were were all Israelites, we're all from different tribes. Some are from the tribe of Benjamin, some are from the tribe of Judah. We got Manasseh, we got Ephraim, and we've got the Levites. if, If we were still under the system today, you couldn't just sin, go into your backyard, Kill your golden retriever, Doug, and I know, and then, and then boom, you're good, right? No, you couldn't do that. That's not how this system worked. You had to go to the Levites, to, and they would offer a sacrifice for you. They were, the, they were the intermediary between you and God. They were the priests. And so not anyone could commit these sacrifices. Only the Levites could. And then once the sacrifice was done, God saw the genuineness of the repentance of your heart, and then you were made right with God. That's the Levitical priesthood. And now, we're going to talk about how Melchizedek, this guy, is even greater than the Levitical priesthood, which is highly exalted. Like, for the Jesus to say something's greater than the priesthood, that's a big deal. I mean, this is the linchpin of you and God, is this priesthood right here. And we got this dude, Melchizedek, 
who apparently is greater than that. And I know you're maybe coming in here today and you're like, this is seriously what we're going to talk about. Some guy named Melchizedek. I probably haven't even heard that name. Uh, I want to plead with you for a second. Uh, give me a chance, okay? Uh, give God's word a chance, really, not me. Give God's word a chance because this actually is really incredible. Uh, when I was reading this chapter, I was at first kind of dreading this moment right now. <laughs> I was like, how on earth am I going to tell these people about Melchizedek? And how, for me, how on earth does Melchizedek even matter? Like, and so I had to get there for myself first. Uh, but I'm glad to tell you, I'm finally there. Uh, <laughs> and I hope that today you're going to be there too, because Melchizedek is actually a really awesome guy. And understanding that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek will help you savor Jesus more in your life. And isn't that what we're here to do? Okay. So let's jump in. Let's see why Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. We're going to read Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Those are some, I saw like some weird stuff, uh, but we're going to break it down. Don't worry. Uh, the reason why Melchizedek is a very tricky character in the Bible is because these are, this is the most detailed information we have about him, are these three verses. He's only mentioned in Scripture four times. The first is in Psalm 1, first is in Genesis 14, which is the reference to the story about the kings. Uh, the second time is Psalm 110, and then the third and fourth time are Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. So this is all we've got right here. And Melchizedek is a super unique character, and we're going to look at, in these, five, in these three verses, there are five reasons why Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So we're going to go through those five reasons, and then after that, we're going to talk about how Jesus is then greater than Melchizedek. So reason number one, why Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood is because Melchizedek's priesthood was universal, not national. So if we were back in the Bible times, the Old Testament, if half of this room was Gentiles and the rest of you were Jews, Gentiles, if you committed a sin and you broke fellowship with God and you knew God, you knew Yahweh, but you were not a Jew, which those people did exist, you could not go to the Levites and ask for them to commit a sacrifice because you're not a Jew. The Levites were only allowed to offer sacrifices for other Jews. So this creates a problem for these Gentiles, right? But we have this guy, Melchizedek, who's not a Jew, but he's also a priest, the only one. So the first reason Melchizedek is greater is because he's not bound to only one nation. He's universal. You might say, Caleb, how do you even know that? Well, when it talks about how in verse 1 it says, priest of the most high God, in Hebrew that is El El Roin, which is the universal name for God. So the Israelites did not call God El El Roin. They called him Yahweh. That was the personal name that God had given the Israelites. And so for Melchizedek to be El El Roin, the priest of El El Roin, is somehow he is over the universal God. Same God, different name, same God. He 
is not just a Jew, but he is for the whole world. He's not bound to only one nation. He is universal. So that's the first way that Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood. The second way is that Melchizedek's priesthood was royal. If you remember any of these five, this is the most important one. This is what we're going to talk about today. Is Melchizedek was a very unique character in the Bible because he functioned not only as a priest, but also as a king. And in the Bible, this is a huge no-no. Like it's, I don't know, if, maybe you remember the story of Saul. When Saul wants to go to battle and he's ready to go to war and all he needs is this dang priest to show up and offer the sacrifice so they can go to war and the priest is running late. He, like literally, like I'm not joking, the priest literally was running late and so Saul just says, forget about him, I don't need him, I'll, I'll just do the sacrifice on my own. So he does the sacrifice on his own and what ends up happening is because of that, Samuel comes to him, Samuel's a prophet, he comes to him and says, your reign is over because you stepped out of bounds. You are a king, not a priest. It is not within your power to offer a sacrifice. And because of that, Saul's reign ends three chapters later. But he tells him right there, this is why your reign is ending, is because you tried to act like a priest and you are not a priest. But yet, here we have this guy, Melchizedek, who says he's the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He is the only character in the Bible outside of Jesus who is simultaneously a priest and a king at the same time. This is huge. This makes him so much greater than the Levitical priesthood because the priest can never be king. The kings had to come from the tribe of Judah. The priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. There's no way you can be from both of those tribes. But Melchizedek wasn't a Jew. And so he was able to be both of these. Not only was he a king and a priest, the third reason why he's greater is because he was righteous and peaceful. The name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. As far as the Levitical priesthood goes, there's, they were not marked with righteousness and peace. Perhaps you remember Aaron's sons, the next priest after Aaron. What did they do? They committed a sacrifice unsanctioned without the Lord's permission, and they ended up being swallowed up by the earth and died because of it. Their priesthood was not marked with righteousness or peace, but Melchizedek was. This is the only thing we know about his monarchy. We don't have any, we don't have any other information about what he was like as a king or what he did or what he was like as a priest. All we know is that he was righteous and it was peaceful. And that's all we need to know. The fourth reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is greater is because it was personal and not hereditary. So if you were from the tribe of Levi and you want to be the priest, oh, psych, guess what? That's not enough. You had to be not, you might be confused by that, but you had to, this, let me explain. You had to not only be a Levite, you had to be from the tribe, you had to be from the line of Aaron. So you had to be by blood related to Aaron, who was the first priest in order to become a priest. And if you weren't that, you were one of the priest's helpers. So you would help with the sacrifice, or you would be a musician, you'd help with cleaning up all the messy blood, whatever. Um, but to be the priest, you had to be in the genealogy of Aaron, but Melchizedek's was not like that at all. When it says here, like I know this part of the scripture is confusing, let me explain that. When it says, being without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, that does not mean he lives forever. That simply means we have no genealogy. We don't know who came before him. We don't know who came after him. Melchizedek did not live forever. Well, he'll live forever like in eternity with us, but uh, like in the flesh forever. He did not do that. 
He, his priesthood was personal. He was chosen by God. He didn't get it by just being born from the right family line. That is the fourth reason why Melchizedek is greater. And our fifth and final one is that Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal, not temporary. When it says that he continues a priest forever, that does not mean that Melchizedek is a priest forever, but that the order of Melchizedek's priesthood is forever. Why? Because Psalm 110 is about Jesus who says he comes after the order of Melchizedek. And so it's not forever because of Melchizedek, it's forever because of Jesus. Jesus was not from the Levitical priesthood. He's from the order of Melchizedek. And that is another reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is greater. So all in all, right, we have Melchizedek is clearly greater than the Levitical priesthood because his priesthood was universal, royal, righteous and peaceful, personal and eternal. We made it through. And now we get to get to the fun stuff. We have to understand that Melchizedek is greater so that we can savor Jesus. So we have this guy, Melchizedek, who is a priest and a king. The only one in scripture outside of Jesus. And Jesus is so much greater than Melchizedek because Jesus is our highest priest and he is our only king. And while this is an intrinsic fact, it doesn't mean that you and I live like it. We have a tendency to put ourselves on the thrones of our own life. And we have a tendency to believe that Jesus' priesthood was not enough and that we have to work for it. And these two roles of Jesus being priest and king, even though you and I don't have kings and you and I don't have priests, we do have a king and we do have a priest and his name is Jesus. And it is important that we understand these roles so that we can savor him more and follow him better. And so that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time in today. We're gonna look at the second half of this book and we're gonna, there's a lot of ways, but we are gonna look at three ways that Jesus being king and priest is significant for you and I today. Let's pick it up in verse 11, and we're gonna read 15 to 17. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The law was insufficient in the Old Testament. This is what the whole book of Romans is about, is that what the law could not do, Jesus did. You could not be made perfect by the law because you could not follow the law perfectly. And so therefore Jesus had to come and he did what the law cannot do, and we are made perfect by Jesus, not by the law. And he didn't do this by being from the line of Aaron. He did this by being through the line of David, being a king and being of an indestructible life, meaning that death cannot hold him back, that he conquered death, and that he reigns on the throne forever. That's what this means. He did this on the authority of who he is as the eternal son of God and nothing less. We're going to read verses 22 to 28, and this is what we're going to camp out in. Verse 22, the argument of the entire passage. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a, guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near, save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's look at verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Every single priest died. Duh. Even Melchizedek died. Jesus is greater because he is eternal. When Jesus died on the cross, it did not prove that he could be killed. It proved that he couldn't be killed because three days later, he would kick death in the face and conquer it like no one has ever before. He is eternal. The king cannot be killed. And if Jesus lives forever, then he reigns forever. And if the king reigns forever, then he ought to be obeyed forever. But you and I struggle to make Jesus the king over every area of our life. We struggle to surrender everything to him. And we don't have time to go through all the aspects that we struggle. But you guys, when we struggle to do that, whatever that is that we hold back from him, one, it's an idol. Two, it doesn't glorify the king. And three, it doesn't bless you, it controls you. And we don't have time, like I said, to go through all the areas we struggle to submit to King Jesus, but I want to focus on one aspect that I think is most relevant to Jesus being king. That's our resources, our time, our money, and our assets. When the Israelites had kings, these kings got whatever they wanted. Originally, God did not want Israel to have kings. But Israel came before God and said, every other country has kings. Please let us have kings. And so God really said, fine, you can have kings. But he warns them. He says, you will have kings, but they will take your sons, they will take your daughters, they will take your money, they will take your land, and they will take your animals. And they can, we don't care. We still want a king. He goes, these kings will abuse their power and take what is not theirs. And they got a king. I mean, you know this is true. Think about even King David, the man after God's own heart, taking another man's wife that wasn't his own, and then taking that man's life. Kings got whatever they wanted. But our king, King Jesus, does not abuse his power. He asks for everything because he owns everything. He owns it all. This is not an abuse of power because it is rightfully his. He tells you to die to yourself. Romans eleven thirty six. for all things are through, for our things are from him, through him, and to him, and to him be the glory forever. When we get to heaven, you and I, we're going to be rewarded for our obedience here on earth. That's what Revelation tells us. Do you know what we will do with that reward 
We're not going to use it to custom build our own house. We're not going to use it to put a pool in the backyard. We're not going to use it to invest it in crypto. We're not going to use it and save it for retirement. What we are going to do is we are going to take all that treasure and we're going to throw it at the feet of the throne of God. Because we want to shower him in all of it. Because he is worthy of it all. And when we do that, the only thing we'll regret is that we don't have more to give. And so here's my question. If, if we know we will be doing that in eternity, then why aren't we doing it now? Because here's the reality. The king's eternal nature establishes our eternity now. You and I will never not live. Your eternity does not begin once you die and are in heaven. Your eternity began the moment you became a disciple. That's why Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It wasn't so that you can have an afterlife, it's so that you can have life now. Christianity is not about dying and going to heaven. It's about dying to yourself and living. That's what it's about. So then the question is, why don't we live like this? If that's what we will do for all of eternity, then why aren't we doing it now? And church, don't get me wrong here. Um, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need you to serve once a week in littles and once a week in kids. But he wants you. He wants to use you to bring his kingdom here on earth. He wants you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he knows that if he really wants you, he has to have all of you. You cannot have God and something else. There are no two masters here. It's not we love God and we love money. It is we love God or we love money. There is no in between. And so the reason why God asks us to give him everything is because he wants us, and the only way he has us is if he has all of us. He deserves our total surrender. Give it to him. He's worthy of it all. Let's look at this next verse. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The primary role of the priest was intercession, right? Is the linchpin between Israelites, God, relationship to be right, Levitical priesthood must offer sacrifices. So this is the same as Jesus. His primary role, and you know this on the cross, right? that what he did was he interceded for us, that you and I would come before a holy, wrath-filled, righteous God and deserve nothing but hell for our rebellion. But Jesus would come in and say, I will take on that wrath for them. And he absorbed all of the wrath that you and I deserved on that cross and he interceded for us that we could have life and have it abundantly. He interceded for us and it changed everything. And if you don't know about that, 
please come talk to one of our elders that are going to be up front at the end of the service. They would love nothing more than to tell you about this king that I'm talking about. But this is something I just, I learned this in school. School's great. Uh, Do you know that Jesus is still interceding for you today? I don't know. It's not that he's still dying on the cross. He's not doing that. But right now, at this moment, King Jesus is interceding for you. When we sing that song, he is for you, he is for you, we mean he is for you. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading and praying on your behalf to God. He's doing that right now. That is what our King Jesus is doing. When you pray, you are entering the communion of the entire Trinity. You are praying to God the Father. Jesus the Son is praying with you and for you. And the Holy Spirit is helping you with the words to say as you are praying. Church, have you ever felt alone or unheard during prayer? We all have, right? That is a lie from hell. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You are anything but alone. The entire Godhead is there with you. And so here's my question. If all of us have felt that way, which it seems like we have, it's pretty clear then that the enemy is trying to attack your prayer life. So my question is, then what should that tell us about prayer? It's powerful. Prayer is so, so powerful. And I think in, our, in, in church and in evangelicalism, we do a great job of focus on being in the word. This is God's word to you. And by default, I think sometimes we forget to talk about prayer, that in God's word, he speaks to us, but in prayer, we speak to him. And a relationship requires conversation that goes both ways. The prayer, praying and the Bible cannot be separated from each other. Prayer, I think sometimes we really dumb it down to this little ritual that we do before we eat our food. And I think that's a travesty. Parents, when is the last time that your kids saw you praying that wasn't at a dinner table? If prayer is really more than a ritual we do before we eat, then shouldn't we be praying with our kids more than just at the dinner table? Praying and interceding for our community, for our city, for our world. Prayer is so powerful. And I think sometimes we blow off prayer because we know God is sovereign. We know Ryan says this all the time, and I love this quote, that there is not a single atom that is out of place God has placed every single atom right exactly where it is. And I think sometimes we use sovereignty as an excuse to not pray. Whatever God wants to happen will happen. Well, in God's sovereignty, he uses your prayer. If God's sovereignty did not exist, prayer would be useless. What good would prayer be if God was not in control of everything? If it was left up to kings and priests and men and women like you and I to control everything, prayer would be futile. But it's not because God is in control of it all. And in his sovereignty, he uses prayer for his purposes. We ought to be people of prayer. It is powerful. And Jesus is there praying alongside of us the entire time. And this is why Jesus is so much greater than Melchizedek. When Melchizedek died, there was no, he could not do intercession any longer. When the priesthood, when the priest died, 
He could not intercede for the Israelites any longer. When Jesus died, he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and he stands on the throne interceding for you day and night. That is why he is so much greater. Let's look at this third and final reason. Verses 26 and 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The third and most obvious reason that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek is that Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices over and over and over again. If, you're in, if you were uh, Israelite and you go to the Levite, okay, boom, you do the sacrifice, sins are forgiven. Next week, you stumble, you sin. That sacrifice last week does not cover you. Your fellowship with God is broken. Another sacrifice has to be made. But not for Jesus. It's not like Jesus has to re-die on the cross every time we sin. Good Lord, could you imagine if that's how it was? Whew. His sacrifice once and for all was enough because he is perfect. His sacrifice was sufficient because he was surrounded by sin but unstained by it. His perfection is the source of our perfection. That is the significance of him being our priest and king. Because he was perfect, you and I are made perfect. Here's the good news. Your status before God does not rest on you. You, do not, you will not go before God one day with a list of all the reasons why you deserve to get into heaven and not hell. But I went to church every single Sunday, but I read my Bible in a year, but I prayed at the dinner table. We don't come before God with a list of the reasons we get into heaven. We come before God covered in the righteousness of Christ and that he will see you not as the broken sinners that we are, but as a perfect son and daughter of the highest king. That is who you are, and that is who you will be before God. Church, we don't obey God so that we can be made perfect. We obey God because we've been made perfect. We don't obey so that we can be made perfect. We obey because we've been made perfect. So church, that's the gospel. That is what King and Priest Jesus is all about. He gives us our eternity now. He asks us to give him everything, but he intercedes for you every step of the way. And so church, even when, even when we struggle to surrender everything to him, even when we dumb prayer down to a ritual instead of the relationship lifeline that it is. You are loved and you are treasured and you are welcomed into his kingdom, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done for you. Will you stand? Let's worship this high king.
Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.